Welcome to He Sang, She Sang, the show about opera from Classical New York, WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian. And sitting in for Mike Schaub, I'm Jeff Spurgeon. Today we're talking about Verdi's Rigoletto. And joining us in the studio is director Michael Mayer. He's directed a number of Broadway shows, including Spring Awakening, for which he won a Tony Award in 2007. Speaking of which, his Tony Award-winning production of Hedwig and the Angry Inch is out on tour right now. Michael Mayer created the production of Rigoletto that's at the Met right now, and it's Rigoletto as you've never seen it, set in a Vegas casino in 1960. Welcome, Michael. We're thrilled to have you here. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So let's set the scene for Rigoletto in its original conception, and then we can delve into some of your updates, Michael. The plot revolves around the womanizing Duke of Mantua and his jester, the humpbacked Rigoletto. Rigoletto also has a beautiful young daughter, Gilda. Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit more about these characters? The Duke, as you say, is a womanizing figure. He proudly discusses his womanizing and how useful they are for a moment to him and how happy he is to move on to others. Rigoletto is his sort of amanuensis, and he is disfigured. He is traditionally played with a hunchback and in motley. So he's like that joker in a pack of cards, usually. (laughs) And in old productions, he would carry a stick with a little jester's hat that had bells on it, just like his. You know, that's the image of Rigoletto that we grew up with. Anyway, he has a daughter that he prizes above all else and has endeavored to keep her completely safe from the world in which he works, which is a licentious world of dubious morals. He's successfully kept her separate from that. However, at some point, she has met this very dashing young student. He sees her at church and he follows her. And we don't know exactly what's gone on between them. Maybe nothing, but there's been definite eye contact. Which is a big no-no. Oh, huge no-no. She's a good, chaste Catholic girl. And not only that, but it turns out he's not a student at all. It's actually the Duke pretending to be a poor student. And we know his intentions are not good. Right. The moment where the opera begins is at the a big party at the Duke's palace. And... Monterone, who is a count from uh, another area, has come in denouncing the Duke for having stolen his daughter's virtue. Basically, he comes in and says, you raped my daughter. I want vengeance. And Rigoletto, who is the Duke's jester, sort of steps in and mocks him in front of everyone, sort of deflating all of Monterone's vengeance And Monterone then turns his anger towards Rigoletto and puts an old, ancient Italian curse on him. And this being, you know, 16th century, Rigoletto takes this curse on and it weighs very, very heavily on him. And this curse was absolutely central to the story, both for Verdi's opera, but also the original story. Yeah, it came from a play that uh, Victor Hugo wrote. So this is one of those uh, Les Miserables and and some other things that came from Victor Hugo, an incredible creative mind. And what I love about the curse is that it was big in 16th century Italy, 
but it was also big in 19th century Italy. So it was mm-hmm. still believed in by Verdi's original audience. So, so the idea of the curse, that was not a casual idea. Oh, not at all. In fact, that was the original title of the opera. You can't, and it's got that big music, <laughs> you know, with the huge tremolo, and it ends the act, you know, and I mean, it's, real, it's a massive motif. So it is an extremely important, it's really what drives all the action. Although I think that it's possible to have the opera unfold without it. I mean, occasionally Rigoletto looks around and says, why is this happening to me? And he goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, I messed with Monterone and he (laughs) told me I'm going to be in trouble. But a disaster like this might have unfolded without a curse at all. Agreed. So the way this curse plays out is that Rigoletto essentially suffers the same exact fate as Monterone did, plus some extra awfulness to boot. You know, if you really want to condense this plot, I actually saw this online somewhere, uh, and it was it was a one-line description of the synopsis of Rigoletto, and it said, Lascivious Duke ravishes Jester's daughter. The Jester's revenge goes tragically awry. <laughs> and I thought, that is, that is it. The rest of it is, is in the details. But let's go on a little bit. The Duke woos Gilda, ravishes her, and then Rigoletto finds out and swears revenge hires a hitman, and the hitman arranges the murder. But the murder of the Duke, the vengeance of the Duke, is interrupted by Gilda, the daughter who's the victim in all of this stuff. And she gets in the way of the assassin and winds up dead. And Rigoletto, when he goes to find the Duke's body to throw it in the river, or in the case of this opera, in the trunk of a car, it's not the Duke, it's his daughter. And it's so terrible. But fortunately, they have time to sing a duet before Gilda finally dies. Quite a beautiful duet, actually. Yes, it is lovely, in spite of all the blood that she's pouring out on the ground at that moment. But, Michael, I want to ask you, what was the inspiration for this? Did you have the idea for this production before the Met came to you? Or did somehow this idea go to the Met and they, I presume Peter Gelb, said, oh, this looks intriguing. When did you get the idea to connect the story of Rigoletto to Las Vegas in the 1960s? I got a call from Peter Gelb. We'd been speaking about my doing some work there. And way up on my list of favorite operas was Rigoletto. And I said, if you ever want to do a new one, 
give me a call. And one day, out of the blue, I got a call from him. He said, I'm in calling from wherever in Germany, and I've just seen the production that we are supposed to do, and it really isn't that different from the current Otto Schenk production that we feel it is time to replace with an update. So I'm flying back to New York tomorrow. Can you come up with a concept in 48 hours <laughs> and present it to me? <laughs> so I had two days. Wow. And I just started brainstorming and thinking about what what is I – mean, I, I knew I wanted to update it. It was a, a handsome, very traditional production, but it wasn't like one of those Zeffirelli productions that is so beloved that you would feel like you were committing some crime if you replaced it. Right. Like it, if he said, like a, a, a Las Vegas La Boheme to replace the Zeffirelli <laughs> La Boheme. Can you imagine? Right. No, I'd have to have plastic surgery and <laughs> change my identity to walk down you know, Broadway. Um, so I thought I, I'd like to do an American Version. That's what I know. I know America, and and I, I don't know how I came upon it, but I was just thinking like, who is the Duke? That's really how I started, and I thought, you know, he's got all of these women, he's got all of this money. I don't want it to be today. And Peter was clear about that. He said, you know, if you set it right in this moment in which we're living then in five years, it's dated. But if you find the right moment in the past, it becomes iconic and it can live on. So this production was, in a sense, it was like a translation. It was like translating actions and characters and and scenarios into a different environment. So I was trying to think, like, what, you know, in 1960... Sinatra owns the Sands, let's just say, and he's the Duke, <laughs> just for, for shorthand. Sake. Sure. And he's got Peter Lawford with him and Dean Martin <laughs> and Sammy Davis Jr. He's got his Rat Pack. And let's say he also has, you know, a wannabe comic who is this Rigoletto, who, who, a Jackie Gleason type, you know, who <laughs> wants to be part of that, or Don Rickles even, you know, who isn't actually in the gang but has a very, very – sarcastic wit and they keep him around because he's a lot of fun but he's not actually one of the pack and all the other pieces started falling into place but how about the audience what do you think the an updated version of of this opera or any opera brings to the audience do you think it adds a different dimension for me it makes the story really accessible you recognize who these people are and since we aren't we're not changing the story. In fact, I really believe we are fulfilling the story in greater detail and with greater believability. I think you're right. So that the audience is really connected to the characters and the story. They're not sitting back and, you know, just listening to the beautiful music and being moved by what Verdi did alone. They're actually engaging, I think, perhaps more with the characters and with the work that the actors are doing. Right. Right. You know, you mentioned the fact that Rigoletto is an outsider, and in the story he really is. You know, he has this physical deformity, but also in the context of all of these courtiers and the Duke, 
he's sort of an observer and a commentator on what's happening and a jester, but he's not totally inside their world. And there's this disconnect between Rigoletto at work and Rigoletto at home with his daughter. He moves in the opera from being this irreverent, even sometimes sort of cruel figure early on, to being this doting loving, very overprotective mm -hmm. father. And it's in his music as well. There's an aria that he sings after meeting Spada Fucile, who's an assassin. He's the, he's the man who ends up fulfilling this curse and killing Gilda, Rigoletto's daughter. And the music in that is sort of dark and shady, and it's all of the dark underside of Rigoletto's character. <laughs> And then he almost immediately goes and meets with Gilda, his daughter, and the music brightens, and you have this gorgeous duet between father and daughter. And you see this dichotomy in the character, this character that Verdi saw as being so incredibly rich, almost Shakespearean. So he really dug in, both musically and dramatically, into this character, who was ultimately an outsider, but so full of passion and love for his daughter in what's a really paternal story mm -hmm. about that love relationship. I like that Rigoletto is a full human being in that regard, in that he has a dark side and then this very warm and tender side. I mean, right. I presume Don Rickles has a family that he loves and that loves him, even though his trademark is, is pretty cruel humor. Mm -hmm. And we would understand that from a corporate magnet. We would understand that from particular kinds of world leaders. We would understand that from infamous people as well, whose infamy is the source of their fame, but whose private lives are filled with as much love as I think that we presume all of our private lives are. So Rigoletto is a great, great character that way. The Duke, however, is maybe not such a great character, and this shines through in his third act aria, which is one of the most famous tenor arias ever written, La Donna e Mobile. He's singing about how fickle women are and how dispensable they are, right. and Gilda and Rigoletto are, are watching. And Gilda is so in love with this duke that even watching him seduce another woman before her eyes, even then she remains devoted to him and sacrifices her life for him. But this is really the tenor's big moment to shine. La donna immobile, qual fiume al vento, musa d'accento e di pensiero, sempre un'amabile, leggiato riso.
It was an aria that Verdi kept secret because he was so concerned. He knew, he knew that he had a hit on his hands. And so he didn't reveal it until very late in rehearsal because he knew that it would be on the street in a heartbeat and he really wanted a little bit of a coup de théâtre, a little bit of a big surprise in the opera. So he, he held it back and, and he was absolutely right. Although I have some affection for Cuesta Oquella too. too. I was just going to say, I believe he that he them? could have switched them, but he <laughs> wanted to hold off on La Donna Immobile right, yeah. right. to give, you know, for the 11 o'clock number. Questo Oquella is the, is the little short aria that the Duke sings at the, at the, in the middle of the party. Yeah. Um, and Questo Oquella. Showgirls. This one. Fan dancing. <laughs> or that one. It doesn't matter either one. So he's, again, mm-hmm. declaring um, his predatory nature and the usefulness and dispensability of the women around him. Questo Oquella per me parisono a cantare tre They're both great show pieces. La Donna Immobile does have that little flourish that the tenor can put on the end. So, sure. so it's the <laughs> it's the bigger hit, but you do have to wait until the third act to yeah. get it. You do. It's amazing to compare the Duke's arias with Gilda's big aria, Caro Nome, which she sings just after she meets the Duke and he he goes away. He's given her a, a false name um, to pretend that he's this poor student. And she... I'm sure he looked very handsome in church, too. Don't you imagine? <laughs> I'm sure he looked Duke, great. Yeah, he looked, yes. he looked pious, knew how to cross himself yeah. and do everything. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no yeah. wonder no wonder she liked him. Oh, and Winking she liked him a lot. across right? the, yeah. the aisle. So, so yes, she, she sings about falling in love with him. And it's just this soaring, beautiful, very innocent and pure aria that contrasts incredibly with everything that comes out of the Duke's mouth. But again, she's fallen completely in love with him somehow. in one of those little pink diaries with the key, you know, that a young girl would have uh-huh. in the in the 60s. And if you look at the pages that she's actually writing on, it all it just she keeps writing Mrs. Gualtier Malde. You know? <laughs> so that's she's the like, fake name that but he, that's he the thing, her. right? That's what the that's that's so typical of of an innocent young girl at that time where you would just in your diary just write his name over and over and over again and put hearts around it and now, I love that element of it, too, because she is so innocent. And part of the reason she's innocent is because she's a nice girl. She's she's every she's everybody's little sister in mm-hmm. a way. Um, but also Rigoletto has kept her out of the casinos or out of the out of the court, out of the Duke's court. Mm-hmm. And and so she she's a nice girl, but she also has no experience in the world. And so this guy comes in and sweeps her off her feet, and she has no idea what to do. Can't help herself but fall in love, 
in the in the conceit of the opera, but in the world, she would just be a total. I I think she's one of the most total victims among all the women. And, and Puccini really knows how to victimize women in his mm-hmm. operas, but Verdi really sticks it to Gilda yeah. and Rigoletto. And that's, in a way, that's not, shouldn't blame Verdi, that's Victor Hugo's yeah, fault. It is. It is. And you think about the Act Three quartet that happens with, you know, this is the moment that poor Gilda is standing with Rigoletto watching on as the Duke seduces this other woman, the, the assassin's sister, as it turns out. And the four characters are standing on stage, you know, these two involved in a seduction, and then father and daughter watching on. And their music is just gorgeous. They're all four of them singing their feelings. And the music characterizes each of their thoughts, what's going on in their internal lives in that particular moment in time. And that's something that opera can do and musicals can do. That's something you can do with musical drama that you can't do with Anything else, I think Victor Hugo knew it at the time. He had this play. But you can't have four people speaking at the same time about what's going on inside their heads and their hearts. But in opera, you certainly can. And it's magnificent. Yeah, it's one of the great quartets in all of opera. Absolutely. And um, and an amazing way to understand where everybody is at that moment. And it's funny because they are. They're just telling their stories. But somehow, Verdi also builds the tension, maybe by... Maybe by letting everybody speak at that time, you just begin to realize what the stakes are that are at hand here. There's a song that I that I love by Rufus Wainwright called Damned Ladies. And it's a song that, that he wrote that is about all of the doomed women of mm. opera. And one of the lines in this song is, Why don't you ladies believe me when I'm screaming? He means inside his head sitting in the opera house. He said, I always believe you. And it's about the investment that the audience can take in a character. And Gilda... Don't go in there. Right, there. Right, right. And every night, just like in Greek tragedy, <laughs> she goes in and your heart just breaks again. Right. It's she goes in and she's, she's and stabbed. She's stabbed. And, oh, God, it's just, it's a terrible, wonderful thing that yeah. we experience in the opera house. Let's go up to the Met to get a different perspective on Gilda. Soprano Olga Peretyatko has been singing this role since 2008. She starred in six different productions and over 100 performances of Rigoletto. So I wanted to hear what she had to say about Verdi's tragic heroine. You have a whole palette of emotions and uh, changing of the character, changing of this young, uh, naive girl at the beginning till the young uh, woman in love and then she's a st- really strong character to be able to sacrifice her life for 
two dear persons. And you should be strong for that. You know, it's not like a victim, a poor little girl. No, no, no. She has a really strong character. And I try to show it always. And uh, that's why it's very interesting. And uh, just to show this development, and uh, this, uh, the show is long, the role is very, very long. You're the whole time on this on stage. And it's tough because the orchestra is big, it's Verdi. And uh, yeah, I would maybe not not now, but I would like to see, see more Gildas in the future because it's something good to come back to. It's just like an old friend. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you talked about her strength and her, and her sacrifice. So mm-hmm. she does, in fact, sacrifice everything, her life. Yes. And for the two, the two men that you mentioned, for her father, Rigoletto, and for the Duke of Mantua. For her first love for and her last love. love. <laughs> That's right, very sadly. <laughs> and mm-hmm. arguably that Duke doesn't really deserve the, the sacrifice that she makes for him. Yeah, you know, the life can be really... <laughs> tough and really hard and uh, justitia it's not always the correct word for this world justice in english is justice justice yeah. yeah no it's true but it's from the perspective of a singer and from the perspective of your performance i like that you see her strength you, you know cuz you could see it as a weakness you people could interpret her that way, but it must be so much more empowering yes. for you mm-hmm. to sing her as a strong character, a strong woman who Absolutely. makes that sacrifice. Absolutely. And then I, with every show, I try to find the communications to the audience to make it more uh, clear uh, for them. Because if I do something on stage, it should be like 1,000 person. Then to the audience will come maybe 70, <laughs> you know, so it's everything is exaggerated, but uh, exaggeration can be different. Yeah, it's not a big gesture or whatever, but the emotions and your uh, will, it's uh, to show, to understand, to feel it. That should be really big. Yeah. Right, because... Opera is about all of the really big emotions that we feel. Absolutely. And then you have a huge house and audience, you know, to, to share it with. You're mm-hmm. projecting not just your voice, but all of the things that you're feeling and exactly. thinking and saying to people who are very, very far away from you. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about singing as a physical, athletic endeavor, and it really is. Can you talk more about that and the ways in which you as a singer are sort of similar to an athlete? Uh, you, are, you are right. But with experience, you understand that it's not only that. Of course, uh, it's absolutely necessary to be athletical because it's a difficult job, actually. But it's something, you know, the message, uh, the message uh, that should arrive to the every person in this 4,000 uh, audience. And uh, not even the first row, but the last, the very last row. And they don't see you if they don't have the something, you know. <laughs> the the, the uh, opera glasses. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, but it should be clear for them, too. Technique is just a base. And then you can add uh, the role and you are the actress. And then this message, what, what you are, why you are here, why you are talking to this audience, why you, uh, you are singing there. So to, to feel it with your personality. It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of work. And, and of course, it's um, a percentage of spontaneous uh, courage, you know, something. Uh, wow, she has a really good performance. And... Uh, my goal is to have every performance like that. So it's just best performance. 
it's not possible <laughs> but we is trying to be uh, to be there yeah to go there to to be as perfect as possible but to be per what is it uh, what is what is to be perfect it's not possible because we are all people they are all humans uh, of course it's interesting not to be perfect for the audience yeah. because it's it shows you as a, a life you know it's just a, not a, like a, something from the like a goddess but it's you are the uh, human uh, human being so it's a very yeah it's normal it's uh, like uh, everybody of us yeah. and uh, you are close closer to the audience maybe but i yeah it's my problem i try to be <laughs> as perfect as possible so mm. how do you cope in the moments you know if you have a performance and you're aware that something wasn't as you would have liked it. Have you found over the course of your career a way to cope with that and to, to let it go? Or do you find that difficult still? Oh, it's difficult. Of course it's difficult. Because maybe nobody will uh, notice it but me. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I analyze every single performance and uh, for sure rehearsal because I'm recording it and to, to, be, uh, to, to control myself. But uh, the recordings will never ever show what is really happening in the theater. Because all these frequencies, all these resonance, it's not possible to record. No. The live music, the live orchestra, live voice, it's completely different. So it's uh, even the best, the very best mic in the world. It's not possible to record every single frequency of your voice. We have a lot. No, it's it's very special to be there yes. in person. Mm -hmm. And there is that element, you know, you were talking about live performance is, is never perfect. There's that element of, of risk and humanity, that, which brings it to life in a whole new way. Yeah. Because people are there, singers are on that stage, and, you know, instrumentalists in the pit, putting everything into it that they have and putting themselves out there and mm -hmm. being totally vulnerable in front of a huge audience. Yes. and. Sometimes it goes close to perfectly, sometimes it doesn't, but every single moment is a precious. living moment and precious. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So for all of those moments on stage, in the time that you're off stage, how do you how do you keep yourself fit and healthy? How do you prepare to be the best singer that you can be whenever you go on stage? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> let's start. No, uh, of course, we should not exaggerate. Uh, yes. We are normal people. We are eating and drinking and uh, having fun, of course. But uh, not before the performance, no. <laughs> Earlier it, would, it, it was possible, but not now, because with the age, I am not a, uh, 25 anymore. You could, my, you could have fooled me. Only in my <laughs> head, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, we are starting, of course, with the, it's super important what you eat. And uh, because it's an athletical uh, mm -hmm. job and you should feed yourself properly. And, uh, of course, sport. So jogging, I do it. Mm -hmm. uh, here, Central Park, it's perfect. Just. Perfect. It gives you a lot of energy. It's everything about energy in our job, in our life. The level of energy is everything. It so is. Try, I try to keep it on the highest levels. So sport, yes. Uh, not in, in the day of the performance, because there I accumulate everything to for the evening. I try not to talk even, because not about this bad, bad for your voice, no. It's, you know, um, destroys your your attention yeah and you should be really concentrated on this last goal and uh, that's 
and yeah, I make yoga just for the same reasons, of course. And uh, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's plenty. I mean, that's taking good care of yourself so that you can. Yeah. Be... Uh, but I'm quite normal, and uh, of course, you know, uh, my husband is Italian, and uh, when we are in Italy, it's uh, there are a lot of good wines there, <laughs> and of course, you enjoy this side of your life. And the way you met your husband, that's a musical love story of its own, oh, isn't yes. it? <laughs> yeah, we were, uh, yeah, we have worked together in Italy. Unknown opera of Rossini, Sigismondo. Nobody knows it. Nobody knew it and nobody will know it. <laughs> Maybe only there, uh, these people who will buy the DVD where we are together. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he was conducting, I was singing. And I met him there. And later, a couple of months later, we re-met each other in Venice first and then uh, Florence. I have spoken a better Italian as uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was two months uh, ago. And um, yeah, we com could communicate <laughs> better. And uh, it's just actually the best, um, the best receipt how to learn the language. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> just marry somebody <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that is very fast. Uh, of course, uh, started with the WhatsApp messages and so <laughs> on. Uh, at the beginning, it was for me with a Google Translate, and uh, <laughs> I needed time to uh, write something romantical. And uh, but now, no, no, my um, I prefer to speak Italian, German, and uh, English on the third place because uh, nobody speaks uh, English in my company in my team yeah and uh, yeah it's uh, i'm here now i should uh, be better actually oh you sound perfectly good to me oh um well that's lovely a sort okay, of <laughs> a relationship in subtitles for the first few months <laughs> i like it um i'm here at the metropolitan opera speaking with olga peratyatko about her role as gilda mm. in rigoletto and this production at the Met by Michael Mayer of Rigoletto is set in 1960 in Las Vegas. This was not the original Verdi conception of this opera. Um, I assume you've done traditional versions of this as well as this production. Can you describe a little bit about this production, what it looks like, what it feels like to be on set, and also what it is for, for you and for singers to do these modern interpretations of these mm -hmm. you know, much older operas? You don't have any idea what I have seen <laughs> in Rigoletto so, and how I was um, killed in Rigoletto in Germany. You don't have any idea. Uh, there are no good modern staging and conservative stage. There are bad and good <laughs> for me, really. The storytelling is important. Yes. In this staging, is perfect. I mean, it's the same story, okay? It's uh, in other different times. But uh, I mean, for American public uh, audience, it's even better because it's uh, closer to them, so everybody knows what is going on in Las Vegas. So mm -hmm. it's, everybody knows what it's about. And to die in the car, yes, okay, you are in Las Vegas and you, <laughs> they you kill you people like that. <laughs> you should die in the <laughs> do you think it helps the audience really when um, when they're updated to you know to be more modern? Do you think that makes the audience feel closer to the story? Uh, if it's done good, it's, yeah. it's a good thing. Uh, absolutely, yes. What's the most gruesome way that you have died as Gilda? <laughs> uh, in the um, garbage. 
in the garbage. Garbage sack, no? <gasps> yeah, because uh, Sparafucili was the cleaning man. <laughs> man. So, yeah, it can be different. <laughs> so I'm happy to, to die here in the car. Yeah, better a car than a, than a garbage <laughs> yeah. bag. Yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, as so many opera singers do, you travel the world more too or much. less, maybe too much, <laughs> more or less constantly. This year you'll be in New York. You're here now, obviously. You'll be in Vienna, Tokyo, Moscow, various opera houses in Germany. You travel so much. Mm-hmm. Are there both good and bad things about? Of course. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's a part of my life. So you should uh, accept it once and that's all. Yes. And just try to organize the trips more in most comfortable way possible. And, for example, I will not buy the ticket, uh, the flight ticket at 6 a.m. <laughs> uh, earlier I did it because it, it was cheaper. Now, no. No more. <laughs> no more. I should sleep. Yes, and uh, of course, uh, you are never at home. Uh, even it's, I'm now in the position, uh, what is my home? Yeah, I have where so is home for a, you? A lot of homes, actually. Okay. Where in Italy. I, I was in Berlin, uh, now in Switzerland. So it's everything just, uh, it's changing. So And I'm always, my home is my suitcase. Yes. And I, in these uh, 32 kilos or 23 in economy. <laughs> so, but <laughs> uh, when I'm going to New York, I always buy the business. You know why? because I, I will buy another suitcase and it's a shopping here damn good. <laughs> I true. know that I will bring it to back to Europe, a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's our life. And uh, yeah, you will never, almost never see your husband if you don't uh, work together and we work almost never together. And that's my life. It's yeah. Do you make good use of Skype to? Uh, oh to, yes. yes. Uh, thanks, Lord. We have internet. I know, yeah. right? It's FaceTime. It's uh, God bless this person who created it. I know. So, so beyond <sighs> clothes for every weather and your your scores and all of that, is mm-hmm. there anything that you always bring with you when you travel around the world? Mocha, yeah, for coffee, for, okay. for yeah, for espresso, <laughs> espresso machine, Italian one. You don't trust the coffee in all of the cities you go no, to. No, because I should have the coffee when I <laughs> as soon as and, you wake up. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and not in every uh, hotel room or not in every flat uh, they have the coffee machine. If it's an espresso, it's better, of course. But so espresso is necessary. Yes, three. <laughs> three, three Just, every day. Uh, three in every morning. Three every morning. <laughs> yes. Well, no wonder you keep your energy up. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you, thank you so very much, Olga Pertiatko, for speaking with me today, and we look forward to hearing you uh, in the broadcast on Saturday. Thank you very much for coming. I'm back in the studio with Jeff Spurgeon and director Michael Mayer, who created the production of Rigoletto that's playing at the Met right now. I'm curious, Michael, when did you fall in love with opera? Did it come before other kinds of musical theater for you? My family, didn't. we didn't do a whole lot of stuff like this. We listened to music a lot. My father and mother were both listen, listening all the time to classical music, and opera was part of that, but it didn't, it didn't really connect with me. I saw Hansel and Gretel at Wolf Trap when I was a kid, and I was really taken with it. I thought it was great. And... Then, many years later, my parents took the family to the Kennedy Center to see the Houston Grand Opera production of Porgy and Bess. And that's the one where I, my mind just blew open. That was the first time I understood 
the scope and the magic of opera about simultaneity, like you're talking about with the quartet, with a kind of epic sweep where music carries so much information, not just emotional information and not just character information, but it also has narrative information in it. And that was really, really surprising to me. I didn't expect that. And from there, I moved just a couple years later. I came to New York to go to NYU. And one of the things I would do whenever I had time was to get standing room for the Met. So I saw, I didn't see a ton, but I saw quite a bit. And I learned very early on that if I got standing room for Lulu or Vatsek <laughs> or Mahagoni, that I would get really good seats after the intermission. <laughs> yes. I mean, Vatsek has no intermission. But, but the, uh, you know, if, if I picked, like, less popular operas, then I would have a, a much more comfortable experience and have a better view. So, so we I should ended really up have really you loving in. some of those, you know, some of the more obscure operas. We should have you in to talk about, yeah, that's right, some of the less standard repertoire. Yeah. But so much of your background is in musical theater in terms of your directing and Rigoletto, I believe, was your opera debut as a director. Is that right? Indeed. H- how was that? How was the translation from musical theater to opera? Did it feel totally natural? Were there things that felt very foreign? <laughs> it was so weird. Really? <laughs> totally weird. I loved it. But one thing that is really different is that you tech the opera. That is, you do all the lighting cues, all the stage moves of the scenery probably nine months before your first rehearsal. So, and in theater, it's the opposite. You're building it, you're making it, you know, you're in rehearsal, you figure out you want this to happen, that to happen. And by the time you move into the theater, you know, five or six weeks after you start rehearsals, you, you really know exactly what you want. And then you can sort of orchestrate it this way. So you had to realize the operatic production before you were in the hall or had met any of the performers? Uh, about over a year before wow. um, talk about I having ever... Your, talk about having your mind expanded. Exactly. <laughs> so it's total... It, that is really freaky to go in there. And you have people walking, light walkers. And I'm like, well, I guess mm, I guess she might be over there for this scene. And yeah, um, could you walk? Oh, yeah, but that, she looks good there. Who knows if Diana Damrau, nine months later, is going to be okay with singing, you know, lying down on that bench. Do you know what I'm saying? So yeah. you don't really know. And then the actual work in the room, once you have the singers, is very much like what we would do. It's, it's You're working with actors. You're storytelling with human beings in three-dimensional space. And you're, you've got the great gift of this magnificent score that tells us so much. I mean... It informs everything. Every choice that's made it goes right back to the score. And so that actually is a very cohesive dimension to the rehearsal process. I guess that in a way then the score is a little bit of a referee between you and the musical director. Completely. If you have some, not disagreement, but differing ideas, it's like what does the score have to do yes. here? Say well, what you have to do. And, and in fact, I would say that whenever there was any tension between me and the maestro and 
there was there were like two moments where it came to a head, and even these little things were small, where I would ask for a little more space for something to happen, and he's like, "No, the you know, the, we have to stay in time right, here," right. that kind of thing. But as you know, in the opera, the maestro has the last word, right, right. and that was a kind of humbling experience for me because in in on Broadway it's the director who basically has the final say. It's time for our YouTube picks. We'll share some performances that we really like to help you get even more familiar with Rigoletto. Jeff, what do you have? I picked the money aria from the work. I picked La Donna Immobile. And uh, just for fun, I grabbed two videos of Pavarotti. One is uh, not in opera, but a concert performance in Moscow in 1964. Pavarotti is 29 years old, so he's just getting started. And it's just, it's in recital, so it's just a piano accompaniment. So you get to hear Pavarotti's voice at that moment. And then the other one that I picked is from the 1982 film that Pavarotti made. It's a Jean-Pierre Ponel production. Um, and and Pavarotti is uh, the Duke in that one as well. So you get a little flavor of the scene at the beginning of the third act when 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 the tragedy is about to take place. What I love about both of these clips is that Pavarotti uses some of his sotto voce. He uses some of his softer voice a little bit in different places, actually. But you get to appreciate besides the incredible ringing sounds of Pavarotti's voice, you get to appreciate the way that he could pull back and that he liked to do that. So, um, and, and also that last flourish at the end, it actually has a little something extra in the Moscow performance when he was young, um, and, and he puts a little bit less of that into the film version. But you get two versions of Pavarotti singing the same thing. He recorded this opera several times. And so there are other ways to hear him sing this aria. And he did it in concert a lot, too. But I like both of these performances. One young, not quite on the international stage, and then one at the height of his fame. That's great. Two versions of Pavarotti. Who could ask for anything more? (laughs) And what about you? Well, I brought a version of that Act Three quartet that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a version of Rigoletto that was filmed for TV in 2010, and it was actually filmed on location at a palace in Mantua, which is in northern Italy where the opera is set. Um, has gardens, has a river, a real palace. All the singers are singing live, conducted by Zubin Meta, and the orchestra is actually located in another section of the castle from where the singers are. So it was this um, magic of monitors and various pieces of audio equipment to synchronize the singing with the with the orchestral playing. That's really something. Isn't it? So in the film, you follow the singers through this castle. And I think it's a good place to start for anyone who might be new to Rigoletto because you have just in stunning detail the the world of this court and this palace created for you. And also the fact that it was made for film, it, it brings it to life in a different way because you have all of the close-ups of people's faces. You really get to see the drama up close. So it's like the Met in HD, only, only it's the Met in HD in Mantua. Yes, yes. That's awesome. And Rigoletto is sung by Placido Domingo. Vittorio Grigolo is the duke. You have Giulia Novikova as Gilda, and Nino Surgalazza is Madalena, who is Sparafucile's sister, the woman that the Duke is seducing in this quartet. 
The singing and acting are great. These are really wonderful performers, but it's also visually stunning. Beautiful lighting, beautiful set. I mean, you can't really get better than an Italian castle. So the um, light, the light is pretty good there too. Yeah, the light so is pretty good. There everything's too. good about that except the knife. <laughs> exactly. You can check out these videos at the He Sang, She Sang show page at wqxr.org. And while you're there, leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the show. And if you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast. Come on, do it on iTunes or wherever you get your audio. Our guest today was director Michael Mayer. Thank you for joining us today, Michael. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York, WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian. And for Mike Shobe, I'm Jeff Spurgeon. And we thank you for listening.